0: Shabbat Shalom, everybody. I'm excited today we're going to delve into Romans. Well, actually, we're not going to delve into Chapter 1 because, um, like I have done before in past studies, I'd like to give an introduction into the book that we're going to be studying before we delve into the actual um, chapter and verse so that we can get the context and really understand the setting of um, the writing. But before we do that, I do want to make um, an announcement for you online about Passover. We are going to be having a Passover feast here in Salem. It's going to be at the Grand Hotel in downtown Salem on Sunday evening, April the second, and you can register online at torahtothetribes.com or on our Facebook page. Um, and please notify us how many are going to be in your party. And that is Sunday evening, April the second, and doors will open up. Four o'clock, and then the Passover service that evening from nine, um, from five o'clock, excuse me, till nine o'clock. So that's at the Grand Hotel in Salem. There are rooms available for those of you that are travelling out of town, from out of town, and a shuttle service also from the airport is available. So we can help you with that. More information, please email us at info at. Torah to the tribes.com. Well, let's turn to the book of Romans, Romia in the Hebrew, or Pros Romanos. Pros Romanos, the epistle to the Romans. Now, what I want to do today, before we actually get into chapter 1, text and verse is to give you an introduction and next week we'll get into chapter 1. So um, bear with me, but I really believe it's important to set that stage for us because how many of us have been in a Bible study where we've done the Romans Road? Come on, show, show me some hands. I mean, it should be everybody in here. I mean, I don't know how many times I've done the Romans Road back at church. So... In preparation for this study, of course, I dug out all of those notes and um, realized that really I didn't have much that I could use. In fact, the pendulum has swung so far that when I copied and pasted the scripture into my notes so that I could begin to kind of work through it during the week and I used the Restoration True Name Edition scriptures... And I started reading through it and I'm like, I can't even use this translation now. Because not everywhere where the Greek word nomos is, is Torah, Torah, Torah. It's not all Torah, Torah, Torah. And that translation, it turns everything into Torah because it's so pro-Torah. But there has to be a balance. And then I'm looking through my notes and I'm, I'm studying. I'm like, but it's not all Book of the Covenant, Book of the Law dichotomy either. So when we approach this, we really need to approach it in a very balanced manner because it's not talking about Torah all the time. But it's not always talking about the Book of the Covenant. It's not always talking about the Book of the Law. In fact, sometimes it's not talking about either of those three. So it's really important for us to spend that time today in this epistle to the Romans. Of course, this is the longest single piece of writing By the Apostle Paul. And Romans is, no doubt, I believe, the most influential letter ever written in the history of mankind. Think about it. It's the most influential letter ever written in the history of mankind. And that's a big statement, isn't it? That's a big statement. But think about it. It's been quoted by Kings. It's been quoted by prime ministers, presidents, politicians. It's been being being used by great men of faith. It's even been used by terrible despots to get you to submit to the government. So yes, it's been used by all, great and small. It's, it's influenced the West, I believe, more than any other historical letter. It's found its way into our civil law. It's found its way into our politics and into our corridors of faith and corridors of power. In fact, the influence that this letter to the Romans has had upon Europeans, especially in the Middle Ages, you can see that in the Protestant Reformation. It's unparalleled. So to really jump right into it, I was very hesitant. Because to do this letter justice, you have to take a step back and come in with a very balanced approach and realizing where we are at in the history of the faith. Because the Reformation, which this letter was used a great deal in the Reformation, that was a huge shift in the faith. A huge shift. This letter being taught and exposed and, and gone through by Martin Luther brought forth the Reformation. And if we are, as some think, the last generation, and Yahuwah is calling the exiled tribes back from the nations and the understanding of returning to his feasts and Sabbaths and coming into line with his Torah is going to now be spoken in this generation and the epistle to the Hebrews is going to be used then can it be just as powerful or even more powerful than the Reformation so I do it with fear and trembling fear and trembling I mean Romans has shaped mankind's view of Elohim The book of Romans has. What's the role of Elohim with his creation? What's the role of mankind in the creation? How do we interact with human authority? Should we just submit to the governing principalities of the world? Should we? Well, some pastors would have Romans have you totally submitting to the local and federal governments based upon verses in the book of Romans. Should we be under the submission of these provincial powers? Look at Romans chapter 1 and the 17th verse. Of course, it's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. For by the gospel is the righteousness of Yahweh revealed from faith to faith. As it is written the righteous shall live by faith. This very verse right here a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 this helped start the Protestant Reformation. This very verse in the 16th century through the very influence on Martin of Martin Luther I don't know if you realize that. This very verse and we could just read right through it. But no. The impact of this epistle to mankind has been huge it's had a direct influence upon the reformed and calvinistic traditions yet even though it's true we can't fall into the trap of viewing this as a theological treatise rather than a letter than it really is it's not some big theological work and we're all going to go down the romans road together it's a letter So we're going to look at it, unravel it, and understand it as a letter. It's not something that we're going to pretend that we're in seminary and overthink it into some highbrow, high church. And that is how Romans has really been monked with over the centuries. And it's, it's really a shame because it absolutely drives me batty When men treat this like some kind of theological dissertation, the book of Romans, the theological dissertation of St. Paul, no, it wasn't that at all. But it ends up oftentimes by pastors and professors as being taught that way. And that's when the waters get really muddy and I get awfully put off. And that's usually when I'd be like, I think I'm done with the 16-week lesson in the book of Romans. Because it shouldn't be like that. It should be exciting and affect our very world that we live in today. Because it's the book of Romans, the epistle really to the Romans, not a book that was put on a theological shelf for us to dissect, because otherwise I'll lose you all within the first chapter and you'll switch off, and I can't blame you because I would too. Because we cannot introduce our own presuppositions and our own agenda into the letter before we've even started. We have to be balanced. I don't want this to be another Roman's road and I'll sit here for 16-odd weeks going, oh my goodness. That would be hellacious to me. It's not systematic theology. Don't worry. We're not going to be getting into it like we're going on a systematic theology course for 16 or so weeks. We're not going to be in seminary, and I'm really excited about that. I'm not going to follow it without um, questioning the um, interpretations that have gone before. I think we have to question those interpretations that have gone before from past generations because otherwise we're just going to succumb again to the traditional Christian interpreters that have formed the backbone of most of the expositors in the past. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, they've all had their hands in Romans and many of the commentaries out there are affected by these men's thoughts from centuries and generations past. Augustine got his doctrine of original sin from Romans chapter 5. Luther got his doctrine of justification by faith alone from Romans chapter 3 and 4. John Calvin's doctrine of double predestination, well, that was Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then, of course, John Wesley's teaching on sanctification came to us from Romans chapter 6 and 7. So there's a lot to plow through. And we're swimming upriver if we're going to be challenging some of these men's ideas, which I will be challenging as we go through Romans. Even Karl Barth, he got his righteousness of God from Romans chapter 1. And today, with universalism just creeping into the corridors of faith from all angles, really, how do we approach Romans 1? It's very important. There's much to be learned from these men that I've mentioned, but conversely, there's much to be unlearned from these men that I've mentioned too. And we've got to be willing and brave enough to do that. Because this is not a book. It's a letter really to the Gentiles or those dispersed Israelites, the ten northern tribes, really that audience which was in the vicinity of Rome. And we have to view it in its historical context as an epistle or a letter. And we can draw out from the text and discover without imposing your interpretation and my interpretations into the text. And, you know, we have to be very cautious not to do that because we need to value this letter as a very, very prophetic message, I believe, for this day and age that we live in. We just had the inauguration yesterday. We have um, a change in the political sphere of the nation that we live those governing powers, have that, has that been addressed in the book of Romans? I believe so, in the epistle to the Romans. You see, it, it just comes naturally because we've been indoctrinated, the book of Romans. You see, it just drips off of my tongue, but really it's not a book, it's an epistle. You see, do you see how, you know, I've done the Romans road, I don't know how many times, I've taught it half a dozen times to college groups in the past, and that's why I'd be like the book of Romans, and I have to catch myself. So we've all got to be on guard and you have to be on guard with me too because we don't want to do the knee-jerk book of Romans exposition because it'll bore you all to death and bore me to death too. So anyway, we have to be careful because this is an epistle with a prophetic message for Yahweh's people in this current generation. And I believe each successive generation along the corridor and history of mankind. But especially for us, if, as some say, that we are and believe that we are the last generation. Because right now, I believe that you're starting to see out in the world, if you've got the eyes to see and the ears to hear, that we are under the anvil of this Roman beast system. Now, there's many interpretations to what this Roman beast system is. But I believe its origin isn't in the papal beast system. But if we go back, we'll look at the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. And the eastern leg of the Roman Empire is where the beast system's throne sat, which was in the Turkic regions. And I believe now what we are seeing with Islam spreading into the West is the migration of the eastern leg of the Roman Empire, the former, former Ottoman Empire, now. All of those troubles coming into the West as there has been huge migration and infiltration from Islam from the eastern leg, the former Ottoman Empire, now all the way into the western leg. And we can see with Paul Shaul, his message initially started in the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. And here, when he's addressing the Romans, he is now, journey has gone on to the western leg of the Roman Empire, and his desire ultimately was to go as far west as he knew, which was what? It says that his desire was to go to Spain, was it not? Because that was the further, farther reaches of the Western Roman Empire. So I believe this all does have a setting for us today. In current events, when we look at Islam and how the migration, and we're the generation that is seeing this huge migration from the Eastern leg to the Western leg. Because today we exist. We live, we walk, we breathe, we see the political landscape. We live in an America or in a West amidst the vacuum of the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. We've got the Islamic Caliphate and the vacuum of the crumbling Western realm of the Roman Empire. And it really was crumbling, wasn't it? And now some are thinking, well, they're hoping and praying that maybe we have this renaissance time. We hope. Or is it going to continue to crumble? But we have to understand, I believe, that we live upon this precipice of the crumbling of the West in the history and migration that we see from this eastern leg to this western leg of the Roman Empire. So going back to the introduction here about Shaul, of course, he was on his way to Rome, chapter 1, verse 11, and he hadn't ever met the Romans before in person. And that's why, of course, you have the longest introduction in the whole of the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah, 11 verses, because he'd never met these people before. Shaw's ministerial message is shifting, I believe, from the eastern leg to the western leg, and eventually his heart's desire will be to go to Spain because this really is important for us to grasp prophetically because we're going to see in the 21st century the migration at its fullest effect. Look what the prophet Jeremiah says about this migration. Jeremiah says in the 16th chapter and in the 16th verse, Behold, I will send many fishers, saith Yahuwah, and they shall fish them out. You see, Shaul, he was appointed as an apostle or a shaliach to cast the net of the gospel to the eastern leg of the Roman Empire to fish them out with the gospel. That's what he did. He cast the net to the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. But what would happen if they rejected that message? Well, the prophet tells us later. And after that, I will send out for many hunters. Who was the first hunter in Scripture? Nimrod, Esau. You see, the sons of Esau. And I will send out for many hunters, and they shall hunt them, This is talking about now the Islamic migration because they rejected the message which was fishermen and now those of us are now under the influence of course of the hunters that have come out from... The origin, the eastern leg of the Roman Empire pushing into the west. And that's what we're seeing now. And I will hunt them out from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. So would you rather receive the true message of the scripture by fishermen? Or if you reject the message, then Yahweh will literally send out Islam to hunt you out of the mountains, the holes in the hills, because you're so stubborn and obstinate that you refuse to be fished out. He'll hunt you out, because if you're his, he will find you. This is amazing, because in our day, we are literally witnessing the eastern leg, Islam, that rejected the gospel encroaching into the western leg, are we not? They are encroaching fully into the western leg more than any other time in the history of Islam. And if you think nothing's going to happen, that it's all going to just simmer nicely and occasionally we'll have an a little eruption here and then a little eruption there, you are Deluded. Deluded. The migration is going to explode in a war between the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau. It's inevitable. It's what you do in preparation in these times now, before the great tribulation, that is truly going to either preserve you or have you handed over to the hunters. And that's why it's such an important time for us to go into this epistle Because we can see that we are in this very, very final hunt for the souls that are bound for the Luciferic realm. That if they don't get hunted out, they are literally bound and will be given over. So there's many themes as we'll be going into Romans. I want to now just touch on some of the major themes of the book of Romans. Justification. Justification, chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. Salvation, chapters 1, verse 16, chapters 5, verse 9, and chapter 8, verse 24. We'll be looking at atonement, chapter 3, verse 25. Sanctification, chapter 1, verse 7, 6, verse 22, and chapter 15, verse 16. What about reconciliation? Chapter 5, verse 10. Glorification. Chapter 8, verse 18, verse 21, and verse 30. Freedom. What does that freedom mean? Is it freedom in grace that we don't have to keep the Torah? Well, for for two millennia, that's what's been taught. I would disagree with that. Chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 3. And chapter 8, verse 1. Transformation. We should be transformed. Chapter 12, verse 2. What about Israel? What is Israel? Chapters 9 through 11. Is it the Zionist entity that was born in 1948? Well, according to John Hagee, interpreted by Messianics, 1948 was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Hmm. Hmm. And every prophetic message off of that date has failed to pass. So maybe you should question the narrative. Maybe it wasn't born by the will of God, but maybe it, maybe it was born by the will of the devil through the hands of Theodore Herzl and the Zionist movement in the 1870s. Have you thought about that? Maybe it's not Israel until all 12 tribes are back in the land under the stewardship of Joseph. Because he says, on you, Ephraim, Manasseh, I will put my name Israel. He didn't say he would put his name Israel on Judah, but upon the sons of Joseph. So therefore, we need to question, who is Israel? This is very important, especially when you see how the Zionist tentacles have got into everything today, into the very halls of political power in America is pulled by the strings of Israel, the Zionist country that was formed, state, in 1948. I think prophecy fails for a very good reason, because it is not part of biblical prophecy, that the state was born in 1948, but we're looking for biblical Israel to be born, which will consist of all 12 tribes back in the land under the stewardship of Joseph, not Judah. And then the question would be, well, who is Judah? Who are the Shemites? Shemites? Because Ashkenaz was a son of Japheth, not a son of Shem. And you see, these are the narratives that I question, which then would draw I would draw another conclusion in my interpretation of the epistle to Romans. So, at the end of the day, how are we going to live in this sick and twisted world that we have been born into? Sick and twisted. We were discussing last night what was hidden 100 years ago and everybody knew it was going on, but it was hidden and socially unacceptable, today is brazenly displayed before us. And then if you try to display conservative Christian um, behavior, then you are condemned for being judgmental and bigoted as a hate crime. Yet what was hidden and was depravity a century ago. Oh, people knew that there were some sick and twisted individuals. But now it is openly on display. Yet if we openly display our faith, then that is bigoted and hateful. Very, very strange. We live in a world full of pagan, twisted Shrines, we have abortion, we have perverted politicians, we have child sacrifices to Molech each and every day. We're going to be looking in as we go through this epistle, relationships between Jews and non Jews. Who is part of the olive tree? What is Israel? We'll be looking at food issues what is food, what is not food, religious days that should be observed in chapter 14. But before we get there, where was this epistle even composed? What was the location of its composition? Well, Phoebe, she was a courier, and she took this letter to the Romans. If you see chapter 16, verse 1, she being a leader in the assembly in Crencia. Now, Crencia was a port city of Corinth. And this evidence leads me to believe that it was composed sometime during Shaul's stay in Corinth or Acacia, Acts chapter 20, verse 2. Hence, the strong Philippic against idolatry and homosexuality, because these were sins that were what? Prevalent and rampant in the Corinthian region which makes me understand why he comes out so strongly against them, because that is what he was observing in the community. What was the day of this? Now, Galleon was appointed the proconsul of Corinth between 51 and 52, some say 52 and 53 of the common era. In fact, we know him from the scripture, from Acts chapter 18, verse, tw- uh, verse 2, no, verse 12, in fact, because Shaul, if you remember, he was actually tried by this man. Let's turn there and we'll see Gallion, who was appointed the proconsul of Corinth, was the man that actually tried Shaul in Acts chapter 18, verse 12. And this is all going to lead us to the dating and composition of the letter. Acts chapter 18, verse 12. And when Galleon, there we have the proconsul of Corinth, and when Galleon was the proconsul of Achaia, the unbelieving Yahudim made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him into the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship Elohim. Contrary to the Torah. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galleon said to the Jews, If it were a matter of criminal wrong, wrongdoing or wicked lewdness, O you Yahudim Jews, there would be a reason that I should listen to you. But if it is to question and a question of words and names and your Torah, you can settle it. For I do not wish to be a judge of such matters therewith. And he removed all of them from the judgment seat. Then all the pagans took Sothenus, the rabbi of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. And Galeon cared for none of these things. And afterwards, Paul, he stayed there for yet a little while longer. And then he took his leave from the Israelite brothers. And he sailed from there into Aram. And with him went Priscilla and Aquila. So we can see from this text that Shaul, he went to Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. And then later, he had a three-month stay in Greece. Acts chapter 20, verse 2. So then this would make the composition of this letter when? In around the late 50s of the common era, sometime during Shaul's third missionary journey, Acts chapter 18, verse 20. And the closing period of Sheol's collection mission for the Jerusalem believers in Acts chapter 15, verse 25. Now, another piece of history to consider to help us in the dating is what's called the Edict of Claudius. And this is recorded in So Antonius Claudius, chapter 25, verse 4, and it's dated in 49 of the Common Era. Now, this was an infamous edict that ensured that all the Jews were actually thrown out of Rome. And they were thrown out of Rome, and it was probably connected to a taxation issue that flared up under the reign of Nero. So this edict by Claudius... It lasted, some say, for about 10 years. So think about this. You've got all of these synagogues in Rome, and then all of the Jews are thrown out of Rome for about a decade. So then who goes in and takes over the synagogues? The new believers in Yahushua the Messiah, right? Right? And now for 10 years, you have 10 Israel, the northern tribes, some would say Gentiles, but understanding our two houses, that the 10 northern tribes are scattered into the nations. The returning Israelites then go into the synagogues and they are now building up the faith in Yahushua. But what happens after a decade when the edict of Claudius is lifted? you have Jews now traveling back to Rome that aren't necessarily believers in Yahushua that now want to come back into the synagogue and now you're going to see the context for a lot of the ruffles and kerfuffles in the epistle to the Romans. Does that make sense? So by understanding this, this opens up my whole worldview to what's going on in the epistle of Romans. The, the edict of Claudius is huge for us to understand the context. They've been kicked out of Rome for a decade. So now we can talk about the faith in Yahushua. We're growing, we're growing. We're appointing deacons and elders and apostles. We're growing in the faith of Yahushua. We're getting the emissaries coming down and talking to us as we're growing. And then all of a sudden we start to get Jews coming back down that aren't necessarily on board. And they're like, what are all these Gentiles doing in the synagogues? And what is this that they're teaching? And there's the friction. And this is what Shaul, the Apostle Paul, is addressing a lot of the time. Circumcision, not circumcision. I mean, you're seeing this friction and it's all based upon the context of the Edict of Claudius, which is, of course, recorded for us in the historic annals of Suetonius, Claudius 25, verse 4. And I believe it is connected to the taxation issue that flared up during the reign of Nero. So, with all that said, this is a long introduction. But I think it's important because then when we get into chapter 1, verse 1 next week, it's really going to give us that context. Because for me, I've studied the scripture for years, as you have. But some of those big paradigm shifts are when, when you came to the revelation that, hang on a minute, not necessarily Gentiles is talking about Goyim, Gentiles, but now understanding that the division of the two houses of Israel and the exile And that Yahweh would regather the 10 northern tribes back in and there would be a... That that huge paradigm shift really awakened the whole of the scripture. Likewise, some of the big paradigm shifts I hope to introduce today will really awaken us to what's going on in the epistle to Romans before we actually delve into chapter and verse. So I think the composition then leads me to think it's between 56 and and 58 of the common era, about seven years before Nero torched Rome. About seven years before Nero torched Rome. So, we now, going back to our present day, our present stage of life, are we going to see this time, like back then when Nero had torched Rome, and he threw out the Jews from Rome, and we saw this vexing and this, this whole migration and it's being addressed in the scriptures? Are we living in a time where we're going to see the globalists and the illegals thrown out of America? Are we going to see that? Some people have been marching and protesting about it today in the major cities. People are concerned. Well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Are we going to see the torching of this Romish republic that we live in? Is it going to be seven years before they're ushering in of the millennial reign? Some people would think so. Or are we going to see a renaissance like no other, like in the days of Cyrus? Some are hoping for that. But we really are living in an atmosphere of charge, religious and political shift, don't you believe? There's no more time in my life where I want to be more serious about my faith and about understanding the scriptures for my family. No more time in my life because when everybody is just being tossed to and fro because they are just oh so unstable, I want to connect to the word, connect to believers and connect to the faith and understand because I want that strong anchor in my life in these crazy times that we're living in. Where morals are just being disregarded. And they're telling me what's up is down and what's black and is white. And we walk in with our families with four, six, eight kids and people look at us like we're outcasts. Because we don't have 1.2 children in tow in the state school systems, right? And heaven forbid if your girls are wearing a dress down to their ankles, my goodness... No, they're not wearing burqas and hijabs. We just like to dress appropriately. But I'd like to talk about burqas and hijabs. Oh, but you can't talk about that. We can talk about women being oppressed and enslaved, but we don't want to say that that really goes on in Saudi Arabia and all Islamic countries because that, well, that's just racist, intolerant. It's craziness, isn't it? It's craziness. I just watched a silly YouTube, and it was uh, it was about this guy, and he pretended to be gay, and he walked into um, bake, a bakery in, in Dearborn, Michigan, an Islamic bakery in Dearborn, Michigan. He was a straight Christian guy, but he was pretending to be a flamer. And he wanted to get a cake baked for him and his friend for their um, wedding. And do you think the hijab-wearing Islamic said that they would bake the cake? Or do you think no? Of course not. Caught on camera. And do we have a lawsuit? Any problems with nothing? But you have a Christian couple up here in Oregon... That says, you know, we're not really into that. No. And they literally lose everything. And it's all over the news internationally. Yet this guy's got it caught on film. In numerous bakeries. Nothing. Who's a persecuted class now? Who's a persecuted class now? That's the reality that we live in. Crazy, crazy, crazy world. So let's continue on. Um, I want to read this to you from the historic annals of Suetonius Claudius. It says this Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the institution of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. So Crestus here being a historical allusion to Christ. It's really a corruption of the Greek Christos. So there were violent debates going on about the claims of Yahushua being Messiah. And this caused the expulsion from the Jews, of the Jews in Rome. Because there were these violent debates going on within the Jewish community. So we have here that the Jews were just expelled from the city because of it. And then... Ten years later, we see that this edict didn't stay in force for too long, but probably about a decade. But it really does form the backdrop to the letter to the Romans because the Jewish majority had actually left Rome, leaving a predominantly Gentile, but we really know that they would disperse 10 Israel. They were in charge. They were in charge within the assemblies and that is the context for some of the troubles that we'll see arising in this epistle. Only later did they have to contend with returning Jews coming back to a totally transformed synagogue landscape with Gentiles or 10 Israel in charge. And of course, that once they were in charge, they were unwilling to relinquish protocol to the Jews who'd spent a decade being influenced by the circumcision and the book of the law adherence In Jerusalem. And I find myself in the same position today. Because quite honestly, I've been, you know, in the Messianic movement for over a decade and I'm no longer in it. Because quite honestly, I've seen so many people that have been influenced by Talmudic Judaism that then come in and try and bring that into the faith of Yahushua. I'm all for Torah. I'm all for the feasts. I'm all for the Sabbaths. I'm all for the dietary requirements. But I'm not going to relinquish the faith that was once delivered to the saints, to a bunch of people that have been so influenced by everything Zionistic, Kabbalistic, and Talmudic, that they can't see the wood for the Zohar. I mean, it's just insane to me. I mean... Yahusha has transformed our application of Torah in our life. Heaven forbid it's not lawlessness, but it is certainly not going to be the same as rabbinic Jews. So I understand this crux that the composition of the letter really does address, because I see that, I really do, today in the age that we live. It was only after the death of Claudius in 54 of the Common Era that the Jews began to return to the city of Rome. So let's talk about the language. Well, the knowledge of the Tanakh, the Old Testament within the ancient world, was confirmed mainly to um, be within the Hebrew language, of course. But then as that message went out to the nations, we had the Septuagint, which was the translation into Greek. And we can see now that this Tanakh knowledge was really kept within Jewish communities. The pagans weren't studying the Tanakh. It was really the Jewish communities. Did they study it in Greek? Yes, some communities in Alexandria And in the dispersion, they did. They studied the Septuagint. So there was a high level of Greek composition that represented the great influence of the Septuagint. And I believe that we're going to see that vocabulary and those literary words in this composition. I don't believe that Romans is something that we're going to see in Latin. And people, well, it's to the Romans. It should be in Latin, right? Well, yes, but not really. Let me explain. Because if Romans were a Latin-speaking peoples, why on earth would Shoal have written to them in Greek and not Latin? Because Cicero once said, quote, For if anyone thinks that there is a, is, is a smaller gain of glory derived from Greek versus than those of the Latin ones, he is greatly mistaken. Because Greek poetry is read among all nations, Latin is confined to its own natural limits, which are narrow enough. So even in the ancient world, they understood that Latin was limited, but Greek was more expansionary and would be accepted as it went throughout the nations. So Latin was mo- a lot more limited. So that's why I believe that Paul didn't write to the Romans in Latin but in Greek because then it would not just be housed in Rome. It could also go out into those other communities because Greek was in fact, many, many people don't understand this, it was actually the predominant language of Rome and the majority of Jews in Rome did actually speak Greek in the first century, and we get that testimony from the inscriptions that you can see of the Jewish catacombs. If you were to go to Rome today, they're in Greek, many of them. So it's pretty interesting that people would say, oh, it should be in Latin when really even even if you go over there and, and examine the catacombs, you'll find it and you've been yourself, right? The Jewish catacombs, you'll actually find Greek inscriptions there, which is very telling. Let's talk about the Torah in this introduction, because the Torah is a part, a very big part, of our understanding when we go through the epistle of Romans. Agreed? But we have to understand that since the time of the Maccabees, the Maccabean crisis, the Torah... It had really become kind of like this badge. It was a symbol. It was kind of like um, the don't tread on me symbol that we have here in America. What is that? That snake, right? What is that? What's it called? Is it called the don't tread on me? You know the flag I'm talking about? Yeah, Yeah, that's a symbol of what? American patriotism. It's It's a... what. What's it called? The Gadsden flag. Yes, that's exactly it. But it's a symbol of American pride, southern pride, patriotism, strength, strength, military valor. Okay, it's it's a symbol. It's a badge. We have to understand the context of Torah since the Maccabees. And the Hasmonean dynasty, the Torah had become a badge, a symbol, a badge of honor amongst the Jewish community, of your paganism isn't coming here. Back off. It was a badge of pride, and that's what the Torah had become. In fact, it was just handed down to the generations. Because you had the Torah, you had a place in the world to come. And that's even written in the Talmud. And many of the Jews, they believed just because they had the badge of honor, they had a place to come in the world, in the next world. And that is something that Shaul has to address because it was this kind of the Torah had become kind of like a talisman, a badge of arrogant. Prideful difference. It was really this Torah kind of gave them this law of superiority and distinction against and over the Gentiles. Well, you're Gentiles. We have the Torah. We're superior. We're the children of God. You're not. Well, hang on a minute. These aren't Gentiles. They're scattered 10 Israelites that need to come back into the faith through the ushering in of the gospel message. So we've got to lay down this badge of pride and really do what the Torah said. Genesis 12, you shall be a blessing unto what? Some nations or all nations. And what I've discovered in the messianic movement for over a decade, it's a badge of pride again. It's this badge of pride. Well, yes, you know, it's because we know the Torah. And it's become this badge of pride, and we're not even doing what the Torah says, which is being a blessing to those out in the nations. What greater thing to turn somebody from some of the depravities listed in Romans one to following the commandments of Yahweh? But we make this insular badge of, of 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 pride, and we all do our Hebraic dancing and, and everything like no. That's not what it's about. Let's see if we can turn somebody from depravity to a child of Elohim. That is what the Torah is all about. That's the kind of Torah that I want to do. So anyway, we can see that within the Torah, Torah equally condemns Jews and Gentiles, equally. Nobody gets a get-out-of-jail-free card because they're doing Torah. But now we have the question of Torah. And like I said, when I started to read the Restoration True Name Edition scriptures, which I love, in the context of Romans, it was Torah, 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 to Torah, 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 Everywhere. But it's not Book of the Law, Book of the Covenant, Book of the Law, Malky Zedek, Book of the Law, Book of the Covenant, everywhere either. So be warned, Matthew, you can't do that either. Because in fact... What kind of Torah are we talking about in the book of Romans? It's amazing. 17 different kinds of Torah. There's actually 22 different kinds of Torah. But we're dealing with mainly 17 different kinds of Torah within the book of Romans. So let me list them for you. Paul identifies 17 of 22 categories of law mentioned throughout the New Testament. Number one, we've got the what? The Torah of faith. The law of faith, Romans three twenty seven. Spirit and life. Romans eight two. The law of works, Romans three twenty-seven, nine thirty-two. What about the law of her husband? I mean it can't all be Torah, can it? Where's the Torah of her husband? The book of the covenant Torah of her husband, no? Right? So Balance, balance, balance as I go through this. The law of her husband, Romans chapter 7 verse 2. What about the law of Elohim, Romans verse 331, chapter 7 verse 22 and chapter 8 verse 7. There's the law of my members. This is all the Greek word nomos, which we translate in the Hebrew roots into Torah. But it's not all Torah, And then in my zeal, I can go, well, it's got to be the book of the covenant or book of the law. No, it's not. We have to wade in gently. There's the law of my mind, Romans 7.23. What about the law of sin and the law of death? The law of sin and death. There's the law of the ruach. There's the law of good and evil, Romans 7, verse 21. The law of righteousness, Romans 9, verse 31. The law of Christ. The law of Christ. I'm not doing the feast and the festivals. I'm under the law of Christ. Will you help me cut down my Christmas tree? I'm under the law of Christ. No, that's not what it means. But how many times have we heard that? The law of Christ, we can do anything we want as long as we pretend to love our neighbor and love ourselves. No, that's not what it says, but that's what they do. The law of Christ, the law of righteousness, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, Ephesians 2.15. Laws under the Levitical priesthood. There's the law of the carnal commandment, Hebrews 7 verse 16. There's civil law. James adds a couple more laws. There's the law of perfect liberty. Then there's the royal law. Luke adds a couple more in the book of Acts. There's the law of Moses, Acts chapter 28, verse 23. There's the law of the Jews in Acts chapter 25, verse 8. So you can see I found it very important to do an introduction because sometimes you just wade right in and everything's Torah. And then we're no better off than we were in the Christian church when everything was grace. Right? I don't want to jump out of the frying pan into a messianic fire. I really don't. But what about justification and righteousness? Because that's very, very important that we understand what Paul's talking about in the epistle to the Romans. Because... There's different understandings of justification and righteousness. There's forensic righteousness. Forensic righteousness means upon close, detailed forensic inspection, that, that kind of righteousness, that only comes through Yahushua Messiah. You're forensically righteous. Upon close inspection, the only way that you can pass is what? through the covering and atonement that comes with Yahushua. Now, that's forensic right, forensic righteousness. But there is there a, a righteousness that I can attain? Sure, it's not going to get me forensically clean. But yes, I can choose to do righteousness, and Paul talks about that. But don't confuse the two. Don't think that you can attain forensic righteousness by doing commandment-keeping. Oh yes, you can not get involved in debauchery and that makes you righteous. Not forensically, but positionally. So we have to understand the difference between positional and forensic, which is eternal, which only comes through Yahusha. These are very important terms. Otherwise, the next thing you know, somebody's going to be teaching you that when you keep the Torah, that that makes you righteous. Well, positionally, but not forensically. Make sure you clarify that distinction because otherwise you're going to diminish the blood of Yehusha, because that's the only thing that can give you forensic righteousness. So it's very important that I spend the time dwelling on these things. But then that's not the only kind of righteousness that there is because there is a kind of righteousness that brings you into the community. You could be in a nudist community. That's not very righteous. And then you can come into the community of faith. Put some clothes on. Come to the Feast of Tabernacles. That brings you into a righteous community, right? See? So there's different kinds of community. Righteousness, forensic righteousness, justification, positional righteousness. We will spend the time distinguishing and clarifying those very clearly because we don't want any confusion. Any confusion. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 20. We've got to be able to discern the difference and be able to do that. We have to take pause. Slow it down. Pause. I have to take into account the surrounding vocabulary in the text. Take note that justification can be used in one passage one way. And then it can be used in another passage, another way. And then justification will be used in another passage, another way. But I have to take into the surrounding text and vocabulary to understand what are we talking about. Are we talking about Abraham and coming into to the community? That's community righteousness. Are we talking about Yahusha's blood? blood? Because now that is what makes me forensically righteous. Or are we talking about me doing good works? Because that makes me positionally righteous. Does that make sense? And all of that I get from the surrounding vocabulary. But we're not going to Romans wrote it, because then we'll just ramrod right through it. rah. Right? <laughs> Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law, Now what are we talking about? Now I'm going to understand... Is this talking about the law of sin and death? Well, I believe here the surrounding vocabulary, it's going to talk actually, truly in this instance, the book of the law. Listen. Because by the works of the law, the book of the law, no flesh will be justified. What are we talking about here? In his sight. We're talking about a couple of different things here. Membership into the community will never come By adhering to the book of the law and the cutting of the flesh. That's what's in view here. But I had to slow it down and take into the whole account of what's going on. Membership into the community doesn't come by adhering to the book of the law and cutting the flesh. That's what's in view here. What about chapter 3 verse 24? being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Messiah Yahusha. What's that talking about? Well, this is just as if you'd never sinned. Just as if you'd never sinned justification. This is talking about forensic righteousness because the surrounding vocabulary here is redemption for which comes only through Messiah Yahusha. So now... This is different, and it's only four verses later. Totally different. But I take into the surrounding vocabulary of the text, and there I draw forth my conclusion. Sylvia, you look extremely confused. Does it ma- Am I making sense or speaking over your head? Are you processing? Okay. Because, because quite honestly, if Sylvia doesn't get it, then none of us are going to get it. We'd just pack up and have a cup of tea and go home. Because if she's confused, then we're all messed up. All right, let's, go on. let's jump ahead six chapters, because this one's always fun, especially once the bloody liberals get hold of it. Chapter seven, Paul and the eye sinner, the eye sinner. The I sinner, let's go there, because this one always comes up. For what am I doing, I do not understand. For what, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing that very thing I hate. It's the I sinner, I, 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 captain everywhere, right? Look at it. For what am I doing? I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. This is the infamous passage. You know what I mean. The I sinner now, right? Okay, see, so you just needed me to just kind of take you there. But theologians upon the centuries, oh my goodness, they've often interpreted this as Shaul personally struggling with some kind of sin. Oh yes, he was struggling with some kind of sin that St. Paul was some Christian commenters, commentators, excuse me, has even gone so far as to accuse, heaven forbid, of Paul for struggling with homosexuality. Have you ever heard that? I know I have. Well, I think he was struggling with homosexuality, they'd say, which to me is just a total desecration of the text and it exposes their wicked and perverted minds, doesn't it? You're like, how did you get that, you weirdo? mind's in the gutter right to the pure of heart all things are pure don't think i want to shake your hand right sometimes things that people say you're like really okay totally did not not on my radar thank goodness Which, of course, you know, by accusing Paul of such an abominable thing, then, of course, that leads them to validate that in their own life and believers' lives. Believers, in quotes there. But in reality, I believe Shaul, the Apostle Paul, is an absolute genius. I truly do. Because as an apostle, I've grown to rate him more highly Um, in my studies more and more over the years in the context of Torah because what he's actually using here in the I-sinner is actually an ancient form of rhetoric called prosopia. Prosopia. It's a literary device that Paul is using to communicate to his audience by speaking as another person. And it comes from the Greek prosopon, which means face, and person, or popion, mean to make or to do the face, to make or to do the face of another person. Because what Paul is doing here is he's using it to give another perspective on the action being described. Does that make sense? So it's it's, um, a a rhetorical device that was used, a literary device back in the Greek-speaking world. Because who is this hypothetical sinner? That is the object of the prosopopeia in Romans chapter 7. Number one, it's a person, and I can testify to this, it was a person struggling with their sin on the way to salvation. I mean, there was a time in my life where I didn't struggle with sin. I just sinned. (laughs) It it wasn't a struggle for me. But then, this really weird thing happened when I turned like 23 and a half. I started to kind of feel like filthy. And My heart was deceitfully wicked above all things. And I was like, I have seen, done things and said things that no man should have done. What is going on? And then I would go and do things and I would just feel filthy. And just demoralized. I don't want to do that again. But I didn't know what it was. See, that's what he's talking about then. Because I was struggling with sin as I was becoming awakened to it on my way to salvation. Before, there was no problem. I sinned with wanton abandonment. But then... I began to struggle because he was calling me. I yet did not know his voice. But he was calling me and my heart was being awakened. And the first thing is awakened to the realization of my own despicableness. Death. Death. I stink of death. That was the sinner being called. The sinner awakening and struggling with their sin on the way to salvation. Number one, that's what he's communicating. Number two, once I got saved, once Yahushua came into my life, I got born and the Ruach HaKodesh came into me, I knew that it happened. I knew that it happened. And from that point on, as a new believer, I began this wrestling match, this struggle in my life that I'd never had before because now I'm beginning to walk in these initial steps of sanctification. And I didn't know what to do. I could no longer do the things that... Used to bring me pleasure because now they brought me sorrow. But I was still around all those people that were doing those things with wanton abandonment. And I wanted to, but I couldn't. And I couldn't understand it. And no one was telling me what was going on. I just had the Holy Spirit inside of me just making me feel conve- condemned, convicted. I couldn't tell what it was. I mean, I had all of these emotions going forth. I'd go and do something, I'd go and buy a packet of cigarettes, you know? And then the next thing you know, I'd, I'd put them on the floor and smash them all under. Under my boots, and, th- and then I'd go and try and do a drug deal and the next thing I know I'd, I'd burn it all up and I was just a madman because the raw acco dress was trying to sanctify me i was on the i was saved but now i was moving in this process of sanctification and trying to put distance between me and the dead man oh but i want to go back and dig him up he'd want to come back and walk into my life this is what he's talking about for what am i doing i do not understand for i am not practicing what i would like to do But I am doing the very thing that I hate. I know this is what he's talking about. Because this was my life. I know for a surety, because this is my testimony. Number one, it was a person, it was me, struggling with sin on the way to salvation. And number two, it's the hypothetical person, but it was me, the new believer, wrestling through those initial stages of sanctification. Shaul isn't struggling with sin like the hypothetical I sinner would as armchair theologians have accused him of for centuries. This is huge, because when we get into this text, now you're going to have compassion upon the new believer. You're going to have compassion on the drug addict that is struggling and no longer wants to do the things that they used to do, because now they can't do them, even though their friends are still doing it. They're like, this. no... Because they are being drawn to salvation. But now they're saved because they've accepted the Messiah. But now they're struggling as they're being sanctified. This is me. This is you. I mean, this is our life, right? What a powerful life. This is what Paul is talking about when we have the framework of the book of Romans and take time in the introduction. This can change lives. Theology doesn't change lives. Theology will never change lives. But slowing things down and having the power of the transformed word changes lives. And now I look around and I see nervous women thinking 16 chapters or so as we go through Romans. Paul and women. Don't you dare speak in church, women. You better be subservient to your husbands, women. Sit down and shut up, Sylvia. (laughs) (laughs) Paul and women, he has a bad rap, does he not? He has a terrible rap with women. We're going to have to deal with that before we get into Romans. Otherwise, we're going to have just a bunch of men sitting in here because the women are going to be... I am not going to go to a Roman study and have you use it for ammunition for me to stay at home barefoot and pregnant and be quiet and subordinate to you, oh domineering husband that you are. Phoebe is our ticket, women. Your ticket, not our ticket. Phoebe is your ticket. deaconos. She was a deacon. Phoebe the deaconos, Because this role actually doesn't appear to be held by any males. The deaconos, Priscilla, in fact. Priscilla is mentioned before her husband, Aquila. Order of priority there is Priscilla, not Aquila. Why Priscilla? Because she's the fellow worker. Look at Romans chapter 16. Let's turn there together. Because, ladies, I don't want you to be sweating in the audience. Such an unfeminine thing. I tell you what, though. That Madonna, she's a sweaty woman, isn't she? Oh, my goodness. That is one sweaty woman. Crying out loud. I'm not really... I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time... Watching Ashley Judd in a movie, knowing that she was at this women's lib riot in Washington, D.C., too. What is it, you know? What is it with these bloody movie stars? They're theater people, they're actors. Stay out of politics. It's none of your stinking business. You don't know what you're talking about. The majority of you are uneducated simpletons that made a lot of money off perversity and debauchery. Why on earth do they think we want to hear their politics? Meryl Streep included. I do not understand. And really, it's just a bad business decision. You're an actor and an actress, and you want to make money? You don't want to cut off 60% of your audience, you idiots. Really? I mean, it's just not smart business. At least Robert Redford had the good sense to keep his mouth shut at the Sundance and say, you know what, we're here for the movies. This really isn't a political soapbox. I have a little bit more respect for somebody like that. That doesn't give you permission to shop galore in his catalogue either. My goodness, when that comes to the house, I get very nervous, Tamara. That's not like a green light for the Sundance catalogue and those crazy cowboy boots that you love. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Let's look at women in the role of Pauline theology. I commend you to Phoebe, our Israelite sister, who is a deaconess. Of the congregation that is at here, that you receive her in Yahuwah as becomes Israelite saints, and that you assist her in whatever business she has need of. For she has been a great help to many and to my uh, myself also. Verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquilus, my helpers in Messiah. Notice the primacy is there on The female, Priscilla, then Aquilus, my helpers in Messiah, Yahushua, who have for my life laid down their own necks, for whom not only I give thanks, but also the congregations of the Israelite nations. Likewise, greet the congregation that is in their house, Greet my well-beloved Aphantios, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to the Messiah. Greet Miriam, who worked very hard for us. And verse 7. Greet Androkinos and Junia. And Junia, my relatives and my fellow prisoners, who are, note, among the apostles. So this is Eunia in the Greek, or Junia. It's not, as the King Jimmy has, Junius, a man. It's not Junius, a man. It is Iunia, a woman, or Junior, Of course, we know the letter J was invented in 1532, which makes Jesus troublesome. But um, again, Junior Iusus, Yahusha, or Jesus, 1532 onward, but Junia, of course, was a woman, and she was outstanding among the apostles, meaning she was an apostle, she was an apostle, so Paul here is empowering women, and if you're a smart man, you'll empower people. Males, females, empower people, recognize them, put them in positions of leadership. They can be apostles, they can be deacons, they can be elders, because the scriptural texts flies in the face of centuries of what? Misogynistic, or misogynistic, excuse me, Pauline theology. Centuries, centuries of misogynistic Pauline theology. But the scripture flies in the face of that. Look at the context of Paul's writings. It's key to understand what his view really was of women. An infamous text, of course, that's used to beat down women. Let's turn there together. Let's beat down some women with this text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. First Timothy chapter two verse eleven. Let the woman there's the chains. Let the woman single singular. You see, plural was actually used in verse nine of First Timothy chapter two a little earlier. It said, women adorn themselves. Let women adorn themselves. But here we switch to the singular. Why, if there was plural in verse 9, would we deliberately have a switch to the singular? Because this is talking about, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. We had a particular woman that was a loud mouth within the congregation that is being addressed. And you know, in my years... I've had one of those women in the congregation before. I remember when I first started out at Torah to the Tribes and I was used to teaching at Calvary Chapel. Well, no no one said a word. No one would interrupt you. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the Hebrew Roots Movement, the Messianic Movement, where there is the Midrash. The Midrash is code for disorder and opinions going a wall everywhere because it's never a midrash; it's an interruption fest. So, but we're going to have a midrash. I c- c- can can I finish the verse so I would have the woman, the one woman that would always interrupt and would always take us on a tangent, and this is what this text is dealing with. One woman, the woman that was particularly out of order. Not a generalization of women, sit down, shut the heck up in church. That's not what this is talking about. As many men that are chauvinistic would like that to be, that is not the case. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I do not allow the woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For, in fact, we should try this out on the children next door right about now, Mr. Bloody Sean. (laughs) Let the children play next door in silence, in subjection to moi, vous, Get on it now <laughs> crying out loud <laughs> Where were we verse twelve let 's just start in verse eleven again. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I do not allow the woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence, for Adam was not was formed. Was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, shall be saved in the childbearing if she continue in the faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. The particular woman we're talking about here is a definite article. The particular woman in Timothy's congregation was like Eve and she was being deceived. That was what was going on. Now she should then learn in silence, be subject to congregational authority in this instance and not be allowed to teach presently because she had usurped authority within Timothy's congregation. And then she'll be saved in the childbearing of Messiah if she continues to walk in the faith. That's what this is talking about. This particular woman is to enter into a, a, a short time of meditation and reflection in silence so that she can come under the tutelage of her peers and competent instructors. Because there was a problem that Paul is addressing. But it is not a broad brush stroke for women. It's the woman. Now let's look at Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And here's another one used again to beat down women. We've got to understand Paul, especially if we're going to have any ladies left in the audience as we go into the book of Romans. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit to other faithful people. Now, I think the King Jimmy and many of them will have let you commit it to other faithful men. But it's not saying that. It says it to other faithful people because the Greek word there is anthropos. It's a gender-free term. It's not aner, which means males. That's not in the text. So this is really talking about committing it to faithful people who are able to teach others also. So are women allowed to teach? Yes. That's radical. Not not to the Apostle Paul, it wasn't. Look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Let your woman, the woman, keep silent in the congregation, for it is not permitted for them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the Torah. The context and the language of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, isn't let your women, but let the woman. Again, identifying one woman, a woman in particular. And what does the Torah teach? Where in earth in the Torah does it say that women cannot speak that they can't teach women were expected to be involved in synagogue um, worship women were expected to take an active um, role in the faith you see it's important for us to understand the whole context of the scripture Think about Yael, think about Miriam, the song by the sea. These were women who were speaking and had an active role in the faith community. So all that being said, this introduction to the the book or the epistle, there we go again, the book, an epistle to the Romans, is very important for us to understand. I'm excited But I think it's so important that we understand the day and the age that we're living in. That firstly, that the Apostle Paul, he was addressing the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. And then, because they went out first and they shared the gospel to fish out believers. But if you reject the gospel message, that eastern leg of the Roman Empire, which became the Islamic Caliphate, they rejected the message. And they then, what, embraced in the 6th century the message of Muhammad, did they not? And that's what we're dealing now, because now that eastern leg has encroached upon the western leg of the Roman Empire. And Paul, here, to the Romans, he was hoping and desiring to go to the farthest reaches of the western empire of the Roman leg, and of course that was Spain. We're now seeing that we're living in this day of the encroachment of the eastern leg upon the western leg. But if we're going to walk forward in our understanding of where we live in these days and these times, we need to understand our relationship to nomos, the law. But it's not limited to Torah. It's not limited to the book of the law. It's not limited to the book of the covenant. Because there's 22 understandings of law in the New Testament the law of sin and death, the law of faith, the law of her husband. There are so many things that we must understand. But again, women, you've got to understand your roles, your positions within the assembly. Women can teach. Women can be leaders, deaconess, apostles. This is important to understand because we've had centuries of women being put down by men based upon incorrect Pauline theology. And lastly and not leastly, this isn't some kind of theological treatise. This is an epistle, a letter that went out to the Romans. And the biggest thing to understand is the Edict of Claudius. That under Nero later after the torching and burning of um, the empire, we saw that the Jews were then expelled from Rome. For about a decade. And then those vacant spots were filled by the dispersed Israelites, believers in Yehusha, in the synagogues that became the leaders, the elders, the deacons, the apostles within the assemblies in Rome. And then later what happens as the edict is passed and Claudius dies, the Jews start to come back into Rome, and now we've got this vexation between the circumcision club that are now returning and those that understand the faith in Yahushua. So as we delve into chapter 1, I'm excited next week because truly this is a fabulous, a fabulous epistle. Um, But we have to overcome theology. There's some great theology in here, but we're not going to be limited to the works of John Calvin. We're not going to be limited to the works of John Wesley. We're not going to be limited to Luther. But understand that the epistle to the Romans brought on the Reformation. And if Luther, through the book or the epistle of Romans, could bring forth the Reformation, imagine what you and I can do by truly understanding the epistle to the Romans from a Torah Hebraic perspective in Yahushua. Do you believe we can change the world? I truly do. I truly do. And that is what excites me. But we've got to get the message out. We've got to return to Messiah Yahushua. We've got to return to Yahuwah. We've got to get into the Torah, get off the pagan, get into the feasts and festivals, get off the bacon and get into some kosher holy living. Amen? Amen. Questions, comments, anybody? Yes, brother. Oh, yeah, we'll um, give you a microphone. I thought you were going to talk to us about catfish. I'm glad you're not, though.
1: No catfish are possible. Okay. I'm tickled that you brought that out about the women. Because a lot of the Christian church, and even in the, the Hebrew Roots Movement, knocked the women down. And they say, well, that, Paul put them down in the Brit. But what about when the, word, when the Lord told Abraham to listen to Sarah? What about the women of Deborah and Esther and Ruth? This is all the Tanakh. How could you say that the women have no place in the house of Abba? Because they're very important. And I I'm want to tell you, as my wife is an example, being a Christian preacher, she helped bring me into Torah because she was bullheaded enough that she read it, she believed it, and she knew it. I already knew everything. I was a Christian preacher. Mm-hmm. How could I know anything more? I you Romans out. wrote it, didn't that, you? That's just the way it was. Right. Until it comes to the reality, that's not the way it was. And I did listen to my wife, and I would not be sitting here in this place today if it hadn't been for my wife. Well,
0: praise Yahweh. I think we can all hopefully testify to that strength in our will lives. You, uh, there was a question. Uh, will you be touching on the uh, letters of Seneca of Paul at all? Have you seen anything about the letters of about Seneca, I guess? Mm, I don't know. Maybe if somebody could forward me some information about that, I would be open to it. Yeah, great.
2: Hey, Blessings, brother. I wanna, blessings. I, I want to tell you that your message is getting uh, around the world. I could tell you that... Uh, I don't know if you heard about this already, but uh, there was an ex-Church of Christ preacher in San Diego, who was very close with to me. Is listening to your uh, YouTube and your and, uh, the uh, Torture Tribes website, and uh, we had discussion. And we I didn't know we were talking about the same thing. And then he mentioned, "Have you heard of this Torture to the tribes?" A website. I said, brother, I attend there. <laughs> 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 this man has been a very close friend of our family. He was there for my my sons, uh, as you know, one of them who passed away uh, a couple of years ago, and then he was down there with my son, other son in San Diego, but he's been a very close, good friend of ours, and he's listening to us today. Hopefully, he'll be able to come up.
0: And uh, uh, that's, a, that's a blessing. Yeah, Blessing. Thank you. And yeah, we are really seeing a lot of people Um, being supportive and uh, thank you online audience for your support and um, get the message out to your community because really time is short and um, this is the vehicle for being able to do it the live stream the website and uh, We are really really blessed with those that are being drawn in any other questions at all. Yes Uh, I don't want to open up a can of
3: worms, but uh, I was before I came uh, there's a Claudius was involved it seems in a, an, Amur, an Amorite Jerusalem and a Jebusite Jerusalem cover-up. That's all I'm going to say.
0: Oh, no, don't just leave it at that. <laughs> Give us more, man.
3: It's not the city of David, it seems. They found it uh, down there. about. It's uh, Jeze- It's a Jezebite Jerusalem. It seems to be in the borders of Judah. Where Solomon built his temple, not not in the city of David, not near the Temple
0: Mount. So, so what you're saying then is that the temp what we know as the Temple Mount today, is not the Temple Mount, but this, but the temple was further south in the city of David.
3: No, the city of David is near the Temple Mount, right outside there. That's the south, right, Jerusalem. Okay. There's a southern Jerusalem within the borders of Judah called the Jebusite Jerusalem. There's two Jerusalems. And Claudius seems to be part of this cover-up, and it's desolate right now. And there seemed to be an earthquake that shook some of it open, and now they're starting to uncover it.
0: Oh, okay.
3: And I think it's in a... a, da, a, a, a ta, it's like or something i'll show you. Okay, later, that's exciting. Which would make sense was that Solomon had built his temple within the borders of Judah, which would be south not 30 yards but more like 30-60 miles south where the um where it's on a hill. It's desolate. It's the foundations are still there. the The waterways are still there, and um, the highways are still paved. The kings, um, the king, the where the kings are buried, are still there. Hezekiah's grave still there. David's son um, Absalom's grave have been robbed. They're all right there, in the south. That's the cover up. the The head Jerusalem is Roman.
0: Romish. romish
3: romish romish and tourist. today
0: zionist right exactly so the,
3: the, the the brothers you would say the uh, from the tribe of judah right are prophesied to wake up the other tribes and they're the ones over there calling back judah calling back israel and they seem to be waking up majority of the other tribes. Well, that's
0: great that you brought that up because now our online audience will be listening and digging into that too. And iron sharpens iron. Anything else, Brother Steve? No. Well, let's um, close in prayer. Abba Yahweh, we thank you so much, Abba, for your word. And as you prepare our hearts, prepare us in our studies as we delve into your word, into the epistle of Romans, Abba, let us all delve in together so that we can bring more Um, together in our studies, Abba, as you bring us forth, Abba, into the nations and from the nations. But Abba, we pray that we would not leave behind any. That Abba, we would have a heart like you have a heart to go out for that one lost sheep and bring them back into the fold in these perilous times, in these perilous days. Prepare our hearts, prepare our feet, and prepare the journey ahead for us and our families and our community as we now begin our journey to the Passover in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Stick around, fellowship. Hang out.